I have evidence, 35 millimeter evidence of something really unusual that cannot be explained. That I can share and tell you I know for certain that I've gone to extreme lengths to have explained to me. And to this date, no one can explain what they are. They can explain what they're not, but they can't explain what they are. What is going on, guys? Welcome to the Raw and Relentless podcast. We are officially back, and today um, what we're doing is we're celebrating, I believe it is the, if I, my math is correct, 24th anniversary of the actual Phoenix Lights, which is very fitting because I currently live in Phoenix, and at the time, my guest lived in the Phoenix area, and she has one of the most famous site, uh, video footage of uh, the largest mass sighting of UFOs the Phoenix Lights, which you may have heard of, especially since we've talked about it on this podcast. So real quick introduction. This is Dr. Lynn K- Kitai, Kitai? Key, key tie, like a key and a tie. Kitai. Um, she's <laughs> yeah. a medical doctor and she's internationally acclaimed, uh, has been for 40 years as far as the, the health side of things goes. But what she really, her big claim to fame here is she uh, had one of the most famous uh, video footage sightings of this large V delta shaped boomerang shaped object that was witnessed by over 10,000 people on March 13th, 1997 throughout Arizona and even into states like Nevada and New Mexico and California uh, for more than dozens of hours. She's photographed the Phoenix lights up close and personal. And also prior to the mass sighting, she had a few sightings of her own, which she also photographed. She has a book called the Phoenix lights, a skeptics discovery that we are not alone as well as the di- directed a documentary, which you can check out on Amazon Prime called Phoenix Lights Beyond Top Secret. And I'm going to link to her book, her websites, and all that other stuff below this video right now. So you guys can go ahead and check it out after the podcast. But we've got a very interesting one. She has a real quick PowerPoint presentation that she wants to share. And then we're going to open it up to all the juicy questions. um, Because I know I, as well as some of the other people who have been watching this podcast, have a lot of questions for Dr. Kitai. Um, So let's get started, doctor. Uh, Did you want me to go ahead and start the PowerPoint presentation now? Well, uh, just to introduce it, I, I really appreciate being here. Uh, it took me a long time. I stayed anonymous for seven years after the mass sighting. We'll get to that. Um, had no interest or knowledge in this topic at all. Um, and yet, as a scientist, I wanted to be as meticulous as I could with the data. As a physician, most anomalies can be explained. Only a small percentage cannot. But just because we don't have the technology yet to definitively define what these things are, it doesn't mean they're not real. And um, being an experiencer myself, up close and personal, which we'll also get to, um, I, I knew how that felt, the, the urgency to not only find out what's going on, and as a healthy skeptic, and not having any interest or knowledge in the topic, um, I I really, I pushed my whole medical career aside to try to find a logical source and meaning for what I witnessed and photographed. The only person with 35 millimeter photographs that have been analyzed and authenticated by military and uh, university optical experts as true unknowns. And when you have that as an educator, actually for the last 40 years, I dedicated my life's work to community education of vital health issues. I have a company, Health Education Learning Programs, which distributes AIDS, teen pregnancy, substance abuse prevention education programs, discovery education was distributing them for many decades. And when this fell in my lap, again, as a physician, I I wanted to let people know they're not alone. 
when someone has an experience, even though it may be able to be explained, a paranormal experience is real to them. And if they don't share it, it festers. I always invite uh, the audience to either get in touch with me on the Phoenix Lights Network website, which if they can get to now, uh, we're gonna go into some things there. It's packed with information, as well as um, Facebook. If they wanna message me, even if you just tell one person and I take confidentiality very seriously. So um, it, it's very cathartic, very healing. And uh, again, that we're talking about the most witnessed, most documented and most important mass anomalous sighting, UAP they call it now, unexplained aerial phenomena sighting in modern history, if not all of history. And ultimately after I push my whole medical career aside, keeping an intricate journal after thousands of people saw what I had been seeing for two years prior and documenting on film, 35 millimeter and footage, um, what do you do with that? And we can talk about that. A lot of soul searching did not want to come forward, but ultimately had a 750 page journal, squeezed the best of what I found into the first edition of the book, The Phoenix Lights, A Skeptic's Discovery That We Are Not Alone. Now it's in its fourth print and I recommend the ebook to people because it has color pictures and live links and have actually given up my, <laughs> my life's work to actually talk about and share the data. People can decide for themselves. I'm not here to convince anybody of anything. In fact, people come from a different background, from a different upbringing, from a different worldview. Some people can't deal with this topic. Some people don't want to, and that's okay. Everyone in their own time, but the data is there now. And one of the things that happened uh, a few years ago, 2016, which kind of an overview. So we can show that a lot's happened since then, by the way, but I, we can show that and then get into more of the details because there is so much mis and disinformation out there. One of the other main reasons that I came forward is to set the record straight. And we're gonna do that today. So if you wanna show that, that yeah. would be Boom. That's, the that's the first one there after that. All right, so let me know. There uh, we go, that's you it. You want me to play the video? Please, because then people will get the idea of kind of an overview of the what happened. The number of witnesses to the phenomenon that came to be known as the Phoenix Lights was unprecedented. Thousands of people were outside purposely looking up at the sky for a glimpse of the Hale-Bopp comet when they also caught a glimpse of these mile to two mile wide, and it's a very credible report, either these orbs, these giant balls, these giant lights, it seemed to be attached to something, but they couldn't quite see what it was attached to, or there was a force field in between holding them in rock solid formation or actual craft. People saw not only these mile wide craft, those gently gliding right over their heads, rooftop level. Some saw it take off at blink speed. Others saw these <clears throat> actually detach from the main object, go out into the environment and then redock with it later. Incredible technology to be sure. And one of the craft was said to have split in two and then shot up very quickly. And also what was amazing was it was totally silent. That was what was really took people's breath away because even when it took off at blink speed, it didn't even disperse the air. The most reported sighting was of a V-shaped craft that for three hours passed over the city at a very low altitude before veering off to the south towards Tucson. Two months later, a Phoenix City Councilwoman asked for an investigation into the reports. Her request was dismissed with a joke. After the meeting, I was told by one of the deputy city managers that I shouldn't have asked the question 
And I thought, why? And he said, because the mayor did not want anybody to talk about it. Well, the mayor didn't tell that to me, probably because whenever I was told not to talk about something, I usually did anyway. So it was, it was just a very strange time and I really got curious about what was going on. Over that summer, I talked to probably over 700 people and everybody told the same story. They all saw the same object. You can't get that many people to agree on anything. There was another stranger point that the witnesses all agreed on. Everybody said that they felt uh, kind of awestruck, amazed. Nobody was afraid. Nobody said they were afraid. Six months before the mass sighting, the movie Independence Day was big time popular. And we are so inundated with the threat, 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 harm, harm, harm scenario that how are people supposed to react when they see something that uh, really unusual? But as it came closer, a calmness over everyone, adults and children as well, a connectedness to the phenomena that when it passed, children wanted to grab their parents to take them in the car and, and chase after it. Witnesses waited for an official statement. I have a question. Is this your footage? Because this is the one that I feel like. No, this We're going to get to that. This this is actually taken after 10 o'clock. We'll get to it because okay. it gets a little confusing. So investigation. There was no explanation. For That's my picture in the background. Got it. And suddenly on June 18th, a USA Today article front page came out and opened the story up to international scrutiny. We were deluged overnight after the USA Today article came out. Our former Governor Symington called a press conference for that afternoon to reveal the culprit of the Phoenix light. And everyone took it seriously. And here he marches out one of his aides in a giant alien head costume and made a mockery of the sighting, which was really disconcerting, especially for parents who were children that saw this thing that was larger than a giant, giant wall. And yet he's making a joke out of it. And interestingly, right after the 10th anniversary of the mass sighting, don't know why, but he came forward to bravely disclose that he actually saw one of the mile-wide craft. And in his own words, as a military pilot, it was otherworldly. Eventually, an official explanation was offered. The lights had been flares dropped by military aircraft on maneuvers. Witnesses remain skeptical. Right before the third anniversary. On That's my footage. An announcement. The three Air National Guards were coming into town to show everyone the Phoenix light. Reenact the Phoenix light. And they started on March 8th. And it was a joke. Not only did they try to make a giant triangle which fell apart immediately, but it had the characteristic of flares. They had huge smoke trails. They couldn't keep information. It really put the nail in the coffin or anyone that has seen the true unknown. Dr. Lynn Katai has continued to photograph and study anomalies in the Arizona sky and connects with other witnesses internationally. This has been going on since human documentation began. There is so much history of these same phenomena because we don't have the technology to definitively define what these things are it doesn't mean they're not real we may just be looking on the am dial for an fm frequency that'll give you a little a little taste of uh what i'm going to get into because now we know much more than we did even a few years ago 
um, which which I will get to when we get to the to the mass sighting. But just to give the audience a little uh, uh, topography and idea of um, certainly from my vantage point what I was seeing and uh, where. We live mountainside in, in Paradise Valley. For your audience, uh, the Valley of the Sun, they call it, is actually surrounded by mountain ranges. And we're nestled in a mountain range in our home, pretty high up on the mountain, and have a panoramic view of the city skyline, which we really enjoy. And we know what helicopters and streetlights and car lights and all that are for many, many years. Yeah. And one wall of our bedroom is a window. So if we're in the bedroom, Whatever pops up out there, whether it's a, a, a you know lights or planes coming in and out of Sky Harbor, which is right in front of South Mountain, which is on the left there, um, at, in the distance, um, or uh, and Haboob, which is the dust storms that come over. We actually see them come over and then come towards us sometimes, um, or a fire or whatever. We we it usually catches our eye. Now let me get to the topography because this is important. And if anybody is there uh, near their computer and wants to get on the Phoenix Lights Network, www.thephoenixlights.net photo page um, and take a look at, at the different photos. I have a very unique collection yeah. of 35 millimeter, again, that have been uh, analyzed and authenticated extensively the last 24 years. Uh, and what I've documented so far are true unknowns. But from the view of our home, you can see South Mountain in the distance on the left there, and the Estrella Mountains in, are at a far distance on the right, and they intersect in one area there. If you come forward to the bottom of the picture, you'll see a car with lights that reflect onto the road, mm -hmm. very different than the true unknowns, which have their light self-contained. We're going to see that in a moment. Very important to note that. Okay. okay, and to the right of that car are skylights on the on the uh, top of a house there in a line. Oh yeah, I see that. That also is significant because if you take a look at my pictures consistently, that those skylights in the dark are right where, if you look up now, South Mountain and the Estrellas intersect. I see okay. that. Yeah. And uh, while we're on this picture, I'm going to give you a little uh, sidebar here. That's why, you know, I'm going to try to make it as sensible and as logical and, and as the story flows. But this is an important uh, and, and very poignant, I think, component of the Phoenix Lights. Six months before the mass sighting, and I don't believe in coincidence anymore, that too many things have happened since the mass sighting, certainly, and even before. And this was six months before. I was invited to present my substance abuse prevention education program at the Gila Bend Indian Reservation, G-I-L-A. They have their very sacred ground in between, let's say South Mountain and the Australia's in the basin there. And uh, they had one school, K-212, and um, they don't talk to outsiders, but I helped the principal. And after the mass sighting, I noticed that these phenomena these unexplained aerial phenomena keep popping up right where South Mountain and the Australia's intersect. So I called him up and I said, did anybody happen to see strange lights on March 13th? And he started to giggle. Hmm. I said, is that funny? And he said, are you kidding? We've been looking up at them for centuries. We were look they were looking up at them on March 13th, 1997. He says, we call them sky people, light beings. It's part of their culture which blew me away. I had no idea that uh, indigenous cultures worldwide 
and it really opened my my mind to the what he was saying that that they actually not only um, acknowledge that there are other intelligences out there, but visiting here as well. And many, even the Hopi, have protocols to invite these other intelligences in. And he was saying that that some of the native cultures believe that these orbs that we're going to talk about are either spirit world or ancestors coming to give them a guidance and knowledge and comfort and inspiration. And I have to admit, Patrick, I've been inspired. I would have never chosen this topic, but be that as it may. He said, that's how the Estrellas got its name. He said, the Spaniards of the day either heard the lure or saw these phenomena and named the mountains there, the Estrella mountain range, gateway to the stars, I mean, star in Spanish. And plus they feel that there is a gateway or portal right in that area. And I always say, just look at the data. It speaks for itself, then you can make up your own mind. But if you look at my data, my photo data, and we're talking again, 35 millimeter, it's in the negative. It cannot be explained or denied. These keep popping up right in that area. So I leave it to the to the viewer. Hmm. If we go to the next picture. Okay. I'm actually uh, getting ready to move. Um, right, well, go back, go back, go back, go back. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ready to move. I was say, I'm getting ready to move to a neighborhood that's right next to South Mountain. And I went yeah. over there and kind of visited and looked up at the, at the, the sky at night. Um, and I'm moving from downtown Phoenix. And I, I feel like I'm never able to see the stars where I currently live. But at the new home, uh, when you said it's right right by South Mountain, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna be looking up at the stars every night. Or um, they're in between. They're in between. You might not be able to see them because. Mm. Um, and some people that do live in that area, by the way, have seen these phenomena. But um, at, as the principal was telling me, that they look up at these. I mean, this is very sacred ground, so you have to wonder, you know, mm. what's going on in that area. Yeah. Um, but that's cool. You'll have to keep these me posted if, if you see anything. anything. Yeah, the superstition mountains have many sightings. I mean, that's the other thing. Um, if you go to the photo page on the Phoenix Lights Network website and you scroll down to the um, sunsets, I collect sunsets, and uh, on two, a month apart, two different months, November and December of 2000, I captured, and I didn't see it when I was taking the pictures, but they're in the negative, these Im immense rod cigar-shaped objects in the Whoa. same place, okay, a month wow. apart. And uh, there are many reports on Superstition Mountain and also up at the Navajo Range of, uh, of these cigar shaped objects. So I caught those in, in, uh, in the, anyway, I don't want to confuse the issue even more. Yeah. But, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, oh, go back. Oops, sorry. Okay. So 1995, um, my, it, and this is another little coincidence. And this is the first experience that I had with the, with the Phoenix lights. Um, again, with no knowledge or, or, or interest, both of us, and he's a physician as well, on many state and hospital medical boards at the time, and nothing ever ruffled his feathers. Um, here, he's standing in the bedroom talking to my mother-in-law. It happened to be the eve of my birthday, which just passed. February 7th is my birthday. This well, was February 6th, 95. And I was in another room, an adjacent room, taking a nice leisurely bath, okay? And uh, suddenly he shouts out, uh, Lynn, get over here quick. What, what the hell is that? And again, he never gets excited like that. So I grab my camera, wringing wet, and I'm standing at the window, both of us. And 
a little below us. Again, we are nestled in the mountains, gated community. Um, it is a no-fly zone, and this is right outside our bedroom window, a little below us over a very treacherous mountainous mountain, uh, you know, desert landscape, were three amber orbs, one on top and two closely aligned underneath, about 50, 75 feet above the desert floor. This way, we'll get to it. And, um, I, you know, I'm thinking to myself, coming from a video background, I want to get my video camera, but it was downstairs. And, and many people that have had paranormal experiences, I don't know if you've had, but you don't want to move, okay? You don't know how long it's going to last. And I tried to take everything in mentally, the size, the shape, the color. They were about three to six feet each, depending on how close they were. They were oval shape, which is very interesting. And I really noted that. And you know, a couple years ago in 2017, which we'll talk about, uh, the Pentagon came forward and now Navy pilots are coming forward to say that they not only have been studying these phenomena, but the ones that they saw, the Navy pilots, were oval shaped, tic-tac shape. And that really took me aback because these were oval shape. I don't know if they're the same phenomena, but they were oval shape. And I called them an orb because the light did not extend outside the edge. It was self-contained, a uniform amber color throughout. Didn't glare at all. Every other light out there glared. House lights, street lights, car lights, whatever. These did not. Very soothing, very mesmerizing. And I thought, if I don't get a picture of this, nobody's going to believe it. So I go running to the closet because I said I, I collect sunsets. And I have my cheap cat and instamatic sitting there. And I grab it. My husband calls me back. He says, get over here quick. One of them is disappearing. And as we watched in utter awe, the top orb without budgeting from the other two, started to shrink very, very slowly, mechanically, as if there was an intelligence behind it. It's, it's, it's difficult to, to even describe in logical terms, like a dimmer switch. In fact, we had two young boys at the time, they're adults now, who, um, you know, the only movies we watched were E.T., Close Encounters, and we did watch the original Star Trek series because the messages were great and they were really into it. And anybody out there that has watched that, if you think of the Romulan cloaking device, which like kind of wavers before it disappears, I really noted it didn't do that. <laughs> it just started to what seemed to be cloaking. That's, a, that's the only thing I can, uh -huh. I can say. And after it got down to a pea size and disappeared, it still felt like it was there. Where did it go? another dimension perhaps. Anyway, I jump out on the balcony. I got a quick picture of the two lower orbs. Now we can go to the next picture if you, if you wouldn't. So you don't think that it was shrinking. You think it was cloaking to where it you- It felt like it was cloaking mechanically as if there was an intelligence behind it. Again, can you even imagine what cloaking would be like? But that's what it felt like, <laughs> okay? I, uh, that's an interesting story. So before you explain the picture, my buddy um, who is lives local as well, he was at a little house party that was right on Camelback Mountain. So it was one of those nicer neighborhoods. And they were they were talking about UFOs because apparently there was a sighting in California the night before. This is like last March. And as they're talking about it, an orb of light appears right above them, right over Camelback Mountain. My buddy takes out his phone, starts recording it. And I have the footage somewhere on my on my podcast. Maybe I'll show you after we get Oh, yeah, recording. for sure. Um, and he's zooming in with his phone and he's holding still and it's two concentric orbs, uh, one orb inside of a bigger orb. And it looks like they're just spinning in place. So it looks like it's an orb, right? A sphere. 
And as he's standing there holding the phone still, he says, I'm not moving the camera. The thing zips, zips, zips. It shrinks. And I, I screen recorded it and slowed it down frame by frame. As it shrunk, it also kind of like did one of these glitch things. And I fr freeze framed it. It turned into a seashell shape in one frame and then went back to a smaller orb and then bigger orb, smaller orb. I was like, yo. So that kind of reminded me of the orb that you saw a little bit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, these things are around. <laughs> and that sounds very similar to what other people described also days before the mass sighting. We'll get to that. Okay. Um, but this, but anyway, I clicked this picture, okay, which is very significant because here I got those two lower orbs, right? And mm -hmm. I'm out on the balcony. And what was amazing was that there, it was very eerie. There, there was an eerie silence as if time had stopped. Hmm. It was just bizarre. And as I'm actually staring at these two lower orbs, and I didn't share this with a soul until two years later after the mass sighting, it felt like something was watching me. And going through my mind, I was thinking, who are you? What are you? Do you know that I'm here? I'd love to meet you. That's exactly what I was thinking. And the next thing that happened the next, the bottom orb started to shrink, just like the top one did. And something told me to take a picture, and I quickly took a picture of that. That's the next picture. Okay. Right. Go to the next picture, please. And you can see not only did they move, but this picture is really miraculous, and the only one that turned out at the time. Okay, that's a whole other story in itself. I was told that the, they were blank, but thank goodness I kept some pictures. But um, the left bottom one, I actually caught half disappear. And one's still there. What a picture that is. But I didn't even know who to show it to. I knew no one who was interested in the topic and just wondered for two years what this advanced technology was right outside our bedroom window. It was just just yes, totally yeah. bizarre. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm a pretty educated person. I knew nothing about this phenomena, nor did I have time at the time to, to, to investigate it. If we go back to the first picture, what is interesting, and I'm gonna interject this here since we're looking to the, to the pictures. And again, if you don't read my book, you don't know about this because a year after the mass sighting and in our documentary, we actually show a, a sighting that was unbelievable in 98, straight lines and mirror images. And the final thing is a giant pyramid in the same exact spot, by the way. Um, and I had alerted the other people that uh, the lights seemed to have come back through a fog. That's a whole other story. And they were ready, north, south, east, and west. Another little coincidence, the people that took video on March 13th, 1997, during the mass sighting, happened to be located north, south, east, and west. And um, everybody was ready, okay? And, and we documented the 20-minute array, um, 40 miles wide. And I had been told, um, and, and very few people knew what I had after the mass sighting, but I was told by one of the top ufologists that I should contact Navy optical physicist, Dr. Bruce McAbee, which I hadn't. But after this sighting in 98, a year after the mass sighting, I figured, you know what, I'll send him the videos. And as an afterthought, and by then I had gone back to the strips of 35 millimeter and found that I had the first and the last picture from 95, which I sent him to find out what the heck these were, right? He calls me back a couple of weeks later. He said, uh, you told me that close sighting in 95 that you and your husband had was only a couple minutes long. I said, right. He said, are you sure? I said, that's what I remember. He said, you have to ask your husband. Now, interestingly, I remember I said that everybody reacts differently. He was inside, I was outside, right? Taking the pictures. And 
he would not talk about it. He would get agitated when I brought it up, which didn't make sense to me because to me it was awesome and wondrous and all that. And I just stopped bringing it up. And I told Dr. McAbee, he says, well, you've got to confirm that you saw the same thing at the same time and how long it was. So I just sat him down. I said, look, we're not going to talk about it, but how long do you remember that close sighting being? He said, I don't know, two, three, four minutes tops. Went back to Dr. McAbee and told him, he said, that's impossible. I said, what do you mean? He said, look at the pictures. And he was meticulously, in fact, his 21 page report um, where he compared the first picture to the last picture is on the website. He said he was the first to notice, because I just thought it was part of this landscaping, the skyline, that the same exact phenomena, that's where the pointer is, in the same exact location as two months before the mass sighting, which we'll get to, and during the mass sighting was there in 95. Okay, disappearing, and then go to the next picture, where there's two. So the, the, the phenomena in the distance was disappearing at the same time as the closures were disappearing, okay? And then go back to the first picture, and he says to me, but that's not what's the most significant thing. He says, look at the skyline. I said, okay. And I would have never recognized this data. He said, there are many groups of lights, not just individual lights, but groups of lights that are on in the first picture that are off in the last picture, if you look at that one. And he said, that doesn't happen in a couple of minutes. He says, I want you to do an experiment. Go out on the, on the um, balcony, stand approximately where you were standing in 95, and mind you, this is 98, and take pictures of the, of the city skyline one night every hour, the next night every half hour. I actually did it every 15 minutes another night to see when these groups of lights would go out. Okay. Now, when we're home, I usually take a bath between 7 and 8. So let's be conservative and say the starting point is 8 p.m. The last picture is indicative of 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And he says to me, can I present this case at the upcoming MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, International Symposium in Washington, DC, 1999. I said, hey, this is your baby. I would have never known this data. Just please keep my name out of it. Keep me anonymous, which he was kind enough to do. He presented this case. And I didn't tell a soul about it, by the way, after he told me this, um, till the book came out, the second edition in 2010, I figured, you know, it's part of the data, get it out there and whatever. As the first, if not only, authenticated photographic evidence of missing time. Now, what I told you is what I remember, okay? And the reason that I share it at that point, and, you know, it's out there, is to hopefully open the door to the possibility that time isn't what we think it is. Time, what we think of it is primitive, past, present, and future. Yeah. That time even may be spherical. Um, but the point is that uh, you know now that we know that there are ten or eleven different dimensions with um, uh, quantum physics and quantum mechanics, and uh, there's possible different times and spaces out there along with ours. Yeah. Why is it so uh, impossible that there might be other sentient beings in those other times and spaces that we catch glimpses of if we're open to them or invited? So and I, I want to ask you a question because I'm really fascinated by the concept of time so much so that I recently bought a book called Think Like Einstein. And it's like a really dumbed down version explaining a lot of this stuff in a nutshell. And uh 
And, and what you said there kind of, I, I guess I, I want more clarification. So what you're saying is you had through kind of this time-lapse photos in your memory, you de- basically had depicted uh, the only photographic evidence of missing time. So are you saying that you have missing time from your recollection of that? I do not have what I shared with you. I don't even remember going inside that night. I don't remember looking at the clock. What I shared is what I remember. I see. Now, of course, people have said, why don't you get regress and all this? I don't need to. <laughs> We're yeah. going to get to that. <laughs> and so then the other thing I, I wanted to ask you was time, if it's not necessarily how we think. I truly believe that, too, because I was thinking about this uh, a couple months ago. But it hit me that our concept of time is based on like one two, three, that's one second. And then we use that as our unit of measurement. But then I also realized that, you know, we also kind of fit a number of units of seconds into a day, but our day is 100% dependent on the size of our sun and the distance that we are from the sun, meaning that a day and maybe a second would be different on Jupiter or Mars, right? I think Mars technically there their one day for them is like a, a completely different than a 24 hour cycle for us. So it's like, I guess, what is in your opinion, how would you define what you believe time may or may not be? That's, you know, that's why I got this information and this data out there. That's for others that are far more advanced than I am with, with physics and, and um, uh, you know, astrophysics and, and all that good stuff. I wish I could answer that. I just have the data and that's why I finally ultimately put it out there because maybe there's someone that can decipher from this data something um, miraculous and, and what we don't know about time. But the fact is it is what it is. Yeah. So going back to the story, um, I didn't see anything remotely like these phenomena uh, for two years, nothing, okay? And believe me, I looked outside to see if I could see anything until two months before the mass sighting. I'm lying in bed, I see three huge amber orbs at a distance in the, in the Northwest. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, they're mass huge, they're amber color, they're in a line, equidistant line formation, they're hovering for minutes and they actually looked like they were imploding from right to left and they were out. And I mentioned it to my husband and he said, do I still have to go to work tomorrow? I mean, he just didn't want to talk about this at all. He happened to have a, a hospital meeting, board meeting the next night. I walk up into the bedroom and I see out of the sliding glass door that's perpendicular to the uh, picture window, the same three orbs are now in a line formation in front of South Mountain. And I knew they were in front of South Mountain because there's red blinking lights on top of the mountain to alert planes coming into Sky Harbor, which is just in front of South Mountain. And I figured, okay, enough. And these were lower than that. I, I grabbed my video camera, I get outside and it was charged. And I get about 18 seconds worth, the battery goes dead. Whoa, I go inside, I plug in the battery, I go outside, it's about eight o'clock. They're gone. My husband comes up to drive about 8.30. I go outside. I said, honey, remember I told you about the three amber orbs in a row last night far west? Well, about a half an hour ago, they were right in front of South Mountain. As I'm pointing like this, they reappear in the same spot. I kid you not. And it was like, whoa. And, and again, this is another little coincidence. Um, in video, 
it doesn't do the lights justice. They're much smaller, they're white, they flicker, even though to the trained eye, the formations are very compelling, but could be mistaken for other things. But on 35 millimeter, they're in the negative and they're amber. So anyway, I run upstairs, I'm just ready to shoot the three. Suddenly six lights across, totally equidistant from each other, massive span over a mile wide, appear over the three. And I started to shake. If we want to go to the next picture, it's wavy because I was shaking. <laughs> um, not having an explanation for 95, as awesome as that sighting was, this was so massive, go, you know, just popping in my head. Is this a mothership or a fleet? Well, I kept clicking away, thank goodness, because the second picture is really significant, if we can go to that one, because as you can see, it looks like there's a V of five lights, mm -hmm. right? With two underneath. Well, two months later, you might, this is January 23rd, 97. But two months later, during the mass sighting, thousands of people would describe five lights in a V formation with two trailing. We even have radio interviews and all that with people saying just that. So this was two months before. People don't know this. People focus on March 13th. This was happening not only two months before, but obviously two years before, okay? Because I have the same phenomenon in the same location. But be that as it may, as I'm clicking away, the bottom orb started disappearing. Now one has disappeared, so this was two. Then the next picture shows that the top formation is actually turning when there's one light underneath, right? And the last picture in that series shows the thing really turned. And this has all been analyzed by uh, physicists, uh, optical physicists and, at University of Arizona, at Brooks Institute of Photography, Navy optical physicists, Dr. Bruce McAbee and others. If you look, the bigger ones we're postulating are the closer arm mm -hmm. and the lights in between are the further away arm. So what the heck is this? Well, the next morning, I could not sleep well that night, I have to admit. But I get up the next morning thinking, because again, I'm a healthy skeptic, there must be a logical explanation, right? So the night before, I have to say this, while the lights were disappearing underneath, after I took this picture, I ran in and I called the Arizona Republic. And I said, you gotta get somebody out there quick. There's some strange lights in front of South Mountain. Get somebody to take a picture and tell me what it is. By the time I was finished my sentence, they were gone. The next morning, my first call was to the Arizona Republic. And I said, did anybody call last night to report strange lights in front of South Mountain? The girl gets off. She gets right back on. She said, nope, nobody called. Well, I know I called. <laughs> so I said, well, my husband and I saw the same thing. I did get some pictures of it. I just want to find out. I'm sure there's a logical explanation what it was. She says, well, sometimes Luke Air Force Base sends off experimental maneuvers and they don't tell the public about it. And I thought, wow, that sounds reasonable. Let me check it out. So I call Luke Air Force Base tried to be very professional. My husband and I are both physicians. We live mountainside in Paradise Valley. We saw strange lights in front of South Mountain last night. Do you have any idea what they might've been? And from the get-go, she had an attitude. And she said, well, they didn't come in from here and they didn't come out from here, so we had nothing to do with it. I said, be that as it may, we did see something unusual. I even got pictures of it. How can I find out what they might be? She says, well, you said you saw something near the airport. Maybe they saw something there. Now it was a mission. So I called the FAA at the airport and I tell them the same thing. And the girl was really nice. The operator was so kind. And she said, let me see if any of the air traffic controllers saw something last night. She gets off. She left me hanging forever. She gets back on. She says, actually, there was a group of air traffic controllers here last night, Sky Harbor International Airport, 
who did see some strange lights and some of them are here this morning. I said, oh, please, can I speak with at least one of them? Okay, she leaves me hanging again. Finally, this guy gets on the phone and I met him subsequently, really low key guy. He was more excited than me. He says, did you see this? He was just in each other hovering in a formation last night at 8.30. I said, yes, that's why I'm calling. He said, actually there were three at eight o'clock. He said, they, they popped up on radar, they popped up over class B restricted airspace, right? There's a 30 mile radius around the center of the airport. Anyone that comes into that airspace must call into the tower, especially a thousand feet altitude that this object was. They looked on radar, did not show up on radar, they disappeared. At 8.30, when the six popped up, they got really alarmed because it was the same spot over Class B restricted airspace. They looked on radar, did not show up on radar. They took their high-powered binoculars to look. And mind you, these are professional sky watchers, right? And in their own description, there were six points of light, totally equidistant from each other, massive span over a mile wide that seemed to be attached to something but they couldn't quite see what these lights were attached to, which you also hear from many people during the mass sighting. And he was a meteorologist and said, the entire thing turned as a unit against the wind, very significant data, mm -hmm. elevated slowly, and then moved behind South Mountain in synchrony. So I said, so what was it? And there was silence. And then he said, beats me. I said, you're an air traffic control. You're supposed to know it's in our airspace. He said they ruled out every conventional aircraft, balloons, uh, holograms, flares, uh, Chinese lanterns, as well as skydivers with lights. They thought maybe that's what they were. They ruled out every conventional possibility. They were true unknowns to them. Okay. We kept in contact and I continued photographing these things up until and including March 13th. This is another little coincidence. A couple weeks before the mass sighting, it was getting a little ridiculous. My husband was getting really annoyed with every, like the scientists and me had to go out and photograph these things, right? And, and I would, you know, we'd be in the middle of a conversation or whatever. And I said, hold that thought while I ran outside and took pictures and it was getting a little ridiculous. And he kept saying, well, maybe there are fires on the mountains or something. Um, anyway, this is how close I was, Patrick. A friend of a friend had a neighbor who had a friend who knew the past president of MUFON, which I had never heard of at the time. Mutual UFO network. Yeah. I called him up. I said, look, I have, I've been seeing these lights. He hadn't heard about it, but there were other people, including Steve Blonder, who called MUFON up to his balcony the night of the mass sighting because he was seeing these lights and photographing them for days before. And like your friend, and they actually documented and captured a giant arrowhead it looks like a five lights those lights are attached to something I mean all you got have to do is look at the data it's so impressive and anyway I said I have a picture from 95 a close sighting that I know is authentic but I'd like somebody of Chris credence to take a look at it and he refers me to a field investigator a MUFON field investigator for the following Wednesday who calls me on Tuesday to say the then state director wanted to be there Wednesday morning, but his mom had died and passed on Saturday. Could we postpone? I said, well, I said, I am so busy for the next couple three weeks, but I have a little window of opportunity Friday morning at 10 o'clock. He says, great. I knock on his door Friday morning. The first thing he says to me when he opens his door, did you see the mass sighting last night? 
And I said, well, I saw something similar to what I shared with you two months ago. In fact, I called the air traffic controllers again this morning and they confirmed that it was the same exact phenomena in the same exact location over class B restricted airspace. Uh, in fact, um, there were a couple of pilots that called in, a commercial pilot uh, on, on um, departure said, what the hell are these lights over me? And a private pilot called in uh, to say that he was viewing the same exact thing of six lights that, that I first saw. By the time I got out there, I got three of the endpoints of a giant beer triangle on video. And I said, um, uh, I have, the video here this morning. He said, great, because the NBC was coming to interview him in a half an hour. Now, I, like I said, I donated, donated, donated my life's work to community education. I started doing health tips in 76 at NBC in Philadelphia. Mm. A syndication grew from that. Mm. They were showing at CBS Channel 5 here when we moved here in 1980. I started doing health tips for Channel 12, NBC affiliate in the early 80s and then USA Cable in the mid 80s before I started my company. And I said to him, whoa, I said, I don't know what we're dealing with here. If it's military or a hoax or whatever, but it's not about me. It's never been about me. I said, take a copy of the pictures, give it to whoever, I'm out of here, and I left, okay? That afternoon, the afternoon after the mass sighting, at four o'clock, the first news came on. And just like now, we, we see breaking news, well, every news station was showing my video. It was really exciting um, to know that other people were seeing what we had seen, whatever it was. And by the nine o'clock news, a couple other videos came forward. Now the Arrowhead video and my video, this is significant, were shot before 10 o'clock. There are two boomerang videos that were shot after 10 o'clock. And especially the one that's so impressive that you asked me about, um, has been under fire for being flares. We will get to that. Okay. Well, now that, you know, thousands of people saw what I saw, it was like mind boggling. Now what do you do? <laughs> right. And I just to hone in on March 13th, 1997 for a moment, because the technology itself, there's two issues, the technology and how it affected people in real time and long term. The technology was unbelievable that we haven't seen in, in over 24 years. While people were purposely looking up at the sky for a glimpse of the Hale-Bopp comet, did whoever did this know that? But be that as it may, just like in 91 in Mexico, the same thing happened. There was an eclipse. And you know, while there was an eclipse and thousands of people were looking up, there were UFOs everywhere. But anyway, People saw these mile, and this is from, from the 2016 report that you showed at the beginning. We have now learned from the director of the UFO Reporting Center in Seattle, Washington, Peter Davenport, who've got hundreds and thousands of reports and drawings and all that. And we presented together in um, 2017 for the 20th anniversary in Oregon. And he first announced there and has said it subsequently that one of these objects, and again, people were seeing these orbs that seemed to be attached to something. Um, some people saw these orbs detach from the main object, go out into the environment, and then redock with it later. Is that what happened in 95? I'll leave that to the listener. Um, or actual craft was eight miles wide. So we're talking one to eight miles wide. Now, when I talk about a craft, that's another issue. 
okay? After a 12-year study of thousands of reports to the National UFO Reporting Center in Seattle, to Arizona MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, to Village Labs, which was a huge computer lab right near ASU, Arizona State University, that took many of the uh, reports, the clearinghouse for the reports, as well as Councilwoman Vice Mayor at the time of Phoenix, Francis Barwood, who actually received over a thousand reports, um, that there were 10 different craft, two or more people had to see the same exact craft to be in the study. And the conclusion was either there was 10 different craft because uh, it could morph into looking different or the perspective from where the person was standing or an actual parade. And if you go to the GAP page, G-A-P, Geospatial Animation Project on the Phoenix Lights Network website, um, Larry Lowe did an incredible job illustrating and also animating some of these craft. They are very different, not only V-shape, triangle shape, boomerang shape, even disc shape, okay? One of the craft actually split in two and shot straight up. Um, and, and again, the, the technology not only coming at rooftop level, and we have witnesses, pilots, and, and other witnesses, credible witnesses, that were looking into what they call a canister or well of spinning energy, like you talked about your friend, kind of that kind of thing, um, that uh, the pilot is actually in our, in our documentary. I mean, the descriptions are, are mind boggling. So anyway, not only were there 10 different craft possibly, but there's so much misinformation, mis and disinformation out there by the media. They will hone in on two hours and two different uh, events. Well, I'm here to tell you that the events actually started. The first report we have was at 3 p.m. daylight sightings in Arizona. Five o'clock hour were Native Americans in New Mexico. Seven o'clock hour and beyond in California. And then <laughs> the, the 10 o'clock hour, Actually, there were two different commercial airline pilots. One took years to get in touch with me. She was afraid and she's never come forward, but she did tell me the story and I have it in detail in the book that she was leaving from Phoenix to California on a, a commercial jet, 140 passengers and crew and all that. As they're getting near Las Vegas, she noted, they all noticed, one of the craft was covering Las Vegas. And she called radar to see if anybody was pinging anything. Another commercial pilot called them simultaneously to say, what the hell is that over Las Vegas? And then suddenly there was a very authoritative male voice that came on asking for details and kind of freaked out the pilots and said, well, you know what, we, we, you know, we, we probably were mistaken. And they go on their way to California, they're 30,000 feet. Suddenly they see a flare about a half mile away at 30,000 feet, which is very odd anyway. And then moments later, a military jet, even closer, she said she, she almost jumped out of her seat, just passed, like did a flyby <laughs> in the opposite direction. What were they trying to say? She immediately called her husband and said, don't answer the phone or the door. That <laughs> freaked them out. Okay. The sightings continued, even though the bulk 
of reports, and I get this, and why the media picked up on this, were between eight and 10, because that's when most people were outside looking up at the sky, and then when they saw something strange, and you know, again, we're talking rooftop level, um, <clears throat> some saw it take off at blink speed, was out of and dispersed in the air, totally silent. That was another thing that was really amazing. Um, <clears throat> that's when most people called Luke Air Force Base, who denied that they even got calls. Um, in fact, I got a, um, uh, a communication from the weather person from Luke Air Force Base at the time who actually saw the mass sighting a couple weeks ago. This is how long it took her to get in touch with me. And we shared her, her report on the share page on the Phoenix Lights uh, network this past week. Um, but at any rate, not only did the sightings continue and the last report I have personally I was on a flight to, I think it was to film Dateline NBC or something in California. And I was finishing up the second uh, uh, book, the, the second edition of the book. And this guy with his family was in front of me and next to me and this older fellow was next to me. And he turned, he said, oh, I saw them. And I said, you did, tell me about it, if you would. And he said, actually, he was a Boeing crewman coming into Sky Harbor with his crew at 5.30 the next morning when they saw this massive over mile wide craft right over their tarmac, okay? And he would not come forward or anything, but he was very sincere. And that's the last report that I have. So we're talking over a dozen hours, four different states, okay? This is so much bigger than people even realize. And also for weeks and years before, in fact, centuries before we have documentation and that's a whole nother issue if you want to get into the history of these phenomena not only are similar phenomena etched out in primitive caves in, in Peru and even etched out in the mountains here in, in South Mountain we have petroglyphs that are centuries old but Tamarian writings India writings um, some of the pictures we showed at the beginning from the 15th and 16th centuries paintings um, why did they draw that unless they saw something they're trying to depict something they saw if Fast forward to 100 years before our mass sighting in 1897, um, April of 1897, uh, in Kansas, California, Washington, and Canada, they thousands of people were reporting these massive airships with removable lights. Sound familiar? Okay. Wow. And that was six years before the Wright brothers took flight. Okay. And then we fast forward to World War II. And I'm really just giving a, an outline here. Yeah. Uh, Foo Fighters, very significant. Um, I even contacted uh, Dr. Richard Haynes, who formed NARCAP, which was the organization where pilots could report, because usually they were uh, threatened with their careers if they report thousands of pilot reports of these anomalous phenomena. And he looked at my data and said, these orbs that my husband and I saw outside our window, rock solid information, are just about exactly what each side would describe during World War II, they called them Foo Fighters. Each side thought the other side had this advanced spy technology. And it wasn't until after the war, Japan, uh, Germany, and the United States tried to find out who had this technology and nobody did. And then we fast forward to the 80s and 90s with the Hudson Valley, New York sightings, um, UK sightings, Belgium actually is the, is the model 
for what should happen. They got together with civilians and scientists and military and universities to try to study these phenomena. That's what we should be doing, right? And um, and then you, you fast forward to Stephenville sightings and, and Illinois sightings. These are happening not only worldwide, which blew me away because I did not know any of this. A week, actually Tuesday after the mass sighting, which was Thursday night, Again, I see my video on the screen on the news and they're interviewing a fella who has this big computer lab out in Tempe called Village Labs, Jim Delatoso, who also on the side for like 20 years at the time was analyzing pictures and video from all over the world. I had no idea at that point that this was happening worldwide. Oh my goodness, what is going on here, right? And that day, that next day, I pushed my entire medical career aside and started to keep an intricate journal. I had to find out what was going on and media reports, um, military uh, conversations I had, which I'll get to, um, just talking to witnesses themselves, which was very enlightening in and of itself. And the history of these phenomena, I had no idea. And as I did this, it was also very curious. There was no investigation. There was no explanation. In fact, the Arizona Republic, I think the next week had some little uh, paragraph or whatever in, in the B section, <laughs> okay? Now there was a Fox reporter at the time who saw one of these craft and he was on it, okay? He was really great. He did some great reporting. Um, but other than that, it was really, it was just uncanny that there was no investigation, no explanation. Then May, as we saw, Frances Barwood, who didn't see it, but she got calls from so many of her constituents, she was just doing her job, asking innocently for an investigation. She was plastered by the media. I was so glad I stayed anonymous. Anybody that came forward was really ridiculed. Uh, they tried to discredit people. They ruined Village Labs, by the way, in the process. Um, and then it was very interesting. The next highlight was June 18th. Suddenly, there's a front page article in the USA Today article uh, paper, that for the first time, people outside of Arizona were hearing about the mass sighting. And we didn't have social media at the time. And overnight, it went viral. We were deluged by media from all over the world. And it was on every morning show. It was on Peter Jennings, uh, Dan Rather, you name it. I mean, it was just, it went viral. And we didn't have social media, it was unbelievable. By late morning, that next morning after nothing for months, suddenly we get a public announcement that former Governor Symington was calling an unscheduled press conference for that afternoon to divulge the culprit of the lights over Phoenix. And people took it seriously. What and was your reaction when you heard that? Um, I was excited. I wanted to find out what was going on, right? I mean, hey, if you know what it is, tell me, okay, show me. Show me. Did but you anyway, think that this would be your moment of truth when he came on. Yeah, everybody did. Everybody did. In fact, um, I did a, a uh, workshop at the, um, I think it was Contact in the Desert a couple, few years ago. And I was telling this story, and a lady raised her hand and she said, I was there. She was there. I said, Really? She said, And you don't know this, I bet, because anything that's shown, the only thing that's shown is when he brings out the alien, the, guy with the alien head, one of his aides with an alien head costume, and you hear the, the uh, laughter of the audience. She said, then they made everybody turn their cameras off 
and people were pissed. That was the word she used. Wow, wow. <laughs> the media was pissed and there were witnesses there and they were really pissed because how dare he make a joke out of something that was so unbelievably extraordinary and unusual and should be investigated, right? So, and I, I didn't know that until she told me that the people in the audience after they turned off the cameras were not happy about that situation. Uh, you know, anyway. you know, say that because, uh, you know, I, last month I interviewed um, the uh, Stacy Wright from MoveBot. Right. And uh, one of the things that I, I felt when I was talking to her was when we talked about the Phoenix Lights, I asked her about Go Governor Fife Simington and I could still feel her anger towards him to where even after she came, he came out and said, yeah, I saw it. She's like, yeah, screw that guy anyways, because he, he made a joke of it, you know. So well, I, some I people do some, you know, we'll get to what happened later. I, I want to surprise your audience if they don't know. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, people, especially parents that were with kids that saw this thing that was two, three miles malls wide and he's making a joke out of it. So that gave me more impetus to answer your question, mm. <laughs> to find out what was really going on. And I started calling military bases, right? And we have four military bases here and trying to get as high up as I could to find out what they knew. And I never gave them details. I just said that we had seen it and I did get some pictures of it and they really wanted to meet with me and see what I had documented, but I did not want to do that. That was the last thing I wanted to do. But I have some of their conversations in the book and one of them even said, well, uh, the only ones that know this is God and whoever did this. I mean, what kind of an answer is that? Then, are you ready? I get a call a month later, July 24th, by one of the heads of PR at the Air National Guard. And she says, oh, Dr. Lynn, I think we know what those lights were back in March. And I was thrilled. I said, you do? She said, yeah, do you believe in all these months? No one ever looked at the log for visiting Air National Guard. And the Maryland Air National Guard was in town sending off military illumination flares in Operation Snowbird. I know that, that uh, Stacy had mentioned that, and which is important because here in Arizona, we think snowbirds are people coming in from out of town and a lot of people interpreted that. But when I looked into it, in military terms, it means diversionary tactical maneuvers, okay? So they may very well have sent off flares to divert attention away from the true unknowns, but there's not one person that has described what flares do. In fact, at 8.30 that night, from a call the next morning at 3 a.m. from an alleged crewman from Luke Air Force Base to the National UFO Reporting Center, he reported that, that Luke Air Force Base sent off jets to intercept and get gun camera film, which we heard that they did. I haven't seen it, but nonetheless, as they got closer, the lights dimmed and then the entire thing, this was Central Phoenix, 7th Avenue and Indian School, the entire craft blinked out. And this alleged crewman, very detailed, we have some of the report, recorded report in the documentary, very detailed um, and credible. And he said he helped one of the pilots out of his craft because he was so shaken up by it. And that Luke was on lockdown after that. Now, so they were well aware of what was going on uh, at least 8.30 that night. And so if they sent off flares, okay, but nobody described that. And I said to her, well, wait a minute. When was the Maryland Air National Guard in town? She says, March 1st to the 15th. I said, were they in town in January? She says, oh no. I said, are you sure? She said, absolutely not. I said, well, 
my husband and I witnessed the same exact phenomena in the same exact location confirmed by air traffic controllers the morning after the January sighting and the morning after the mass sighting as hovering over class B restricted airspace at thousand feet altitude. And she says, you never told me that. And then I said, and you're trying to tell me that flares, and by then I educated myself to anything logical, including military flares that cannot keep formation that drift and drop on parachutes haphazardly with the wind have huge smoke trails that are illuminated by the flare itself and they're meant to illuminate the area around it right not one person has described that in 24 years that saw the true unknowns and actually i haven't had anybody that tell me they saw flares be that as it may i said you're telling me that flares that cannot keep a formation traverse the entire state in a rock solid, equidistantly spaced, mile wide V formation for hours. And she says, uh, I have a call coming in, I'll get back to you. Well, I'm still waiting. <laughs> okay. So that kind of, you know, even though I put a lid on things, and by the way, right after, I mean, there's so much more to the story, but right after that call, I called my sister-in-law, whose birthday was July 24th, back in Delaware to wish her a happy birthday. The first thing she says to me, mind you, it hasn't been announced here yet in Phoenix that it was flares. She says, oh, we just saw on the news that what you saw back in March was flares. Now they heard of it before we did. The next morning, headline news, Phoenix lights were flares, okay? Okay, so tuck that away. So when that <laughs> happened, were you mad or were you- so That even like gave me more. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe they said Because certainly, look, I've seen them up close and personal. I know they definitely were not flares, okay? Now, if somebody showed me, and this is where it gets really interesting, because three years later, Councilwoman, Vice Mayor of Phoenix, Frances Barwood, was running for Secretary of State to get answers for the mass sighting, even as a public safety issue, right? And she was asking for a reenactment. And that was golden because, okay, if it's military, shame on them for denying it and going right over people's heads, okay? But show me, I am a show me person, okay? I deal with the data, okay? We got an announcement right before the third anniversary of the mass sighting that three Air National Guards, I think it was New York, Michigan, and California, they must have been practicing for weeks. We're going to show everybody the Phoenix lights. Well, if we go to this next thing, which I believe is the next. Um, if you go to the, wait, 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 back, back, back. If, we, if you go to the um, news page on the Phoenix Lights Network website, not now, not now, but your viewers, and you scroll down and there's a block that says AZ Family, um, that actually shows the flare drop that night. It was, talk about a joke. They tried to make a triangle, it was upside down, it fell apart immediately, had huge smoke trails, just what flares do. They actually That's followed happened. through with this. The... They did. In fact, they were supposed to do a two-week run, I was told, okay, by the military. They yeah. scrapped it after that night because they were the laughing stock. They were the laughing stock because then not only the witnesses, but also the media. I mean, everybody was ready, okay, with cameras ready. And um, it was a joke. I mean, it was nothing nothing like the Phoenix Lights. In fact, to this day, they have never been reenacted or recreated, but they, they continue to appear worldwide. 
So it's very interesting. Um, so to this day, they have they have never been um, recreated. So you know, you can take that to the to the bank right now. Now, whether they have advanced technology now that could make it look like the Phoenix Lights, I don't know. I mean, this is like 24 years later. Okay. Also, what was interesting, and we learned at the beginning of the of the uh, program, that right after the 10th anniversary. And again, I'm just giving highlights here. There is much more. I ended up with a 750-page journal, so there's much more to this story. But um, the former Governor Symington came forward. It was a little uncanny that suddenly he came forward to disclose and bravely disclose, I would say, if he actually did see it, um, that he did see one of these craft. And he was an awarded military pilot. And in his opinion, not only was it definitely not flares, but it was otherworldly, which is a word that was used consistently worldwide in other countries concerning these phenomena. If you want to hear his report, CNN report, we have that next after the, that was next, I believe. Yeah. And to decide if he's for real. <laughs> Symington is now a businessman. He was the Republican governor of Arizona for six years, elected when the first George Bush was president. Now, a decade after leaving the state house, he takes me to arc and discloses something unlike anything uttered by any other high-level U.S. politician. If you, if you had been here, Phoenix Lights, an object videotaped by many and seen by thousands over several nights in the Arizona sky. That's the arrowhead, by the way. Okay. Major sighting here. Is this the same night as the mass That's sighting? That's the mass sighting. It was a giant V, all right? And the right side of the V went over us. The left side was like a couple blocks over it. I just didn't know what to do. You know, it was just like, my God, how big is this thing? The great state of Arizona, Fife Symington. The former governor of Vietnam Air Force veteran had never publicly acknowledged seeing it. And I suspect that uh, unless uh, uh, the Defense Department proves us otherwise, that it was probably uh, some form of an alien spacecraft. So why did he say anything then? Partly, he says, because he didn't want people to panic. I think as a public figure, you have to be very careful about what you say, because uh, people can have pretty uh, emotional reactions. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I said my goal wasn't to try to stir the pot. And he went to humorous and controversial lengths not to stir the pot. He held a news conference after the Phoenix Lights to announce the mystery had been solved. And now I'll ask Officer Stein and his colleagues to escort the accused into the room so that we may all look upon the guilty party. Don't get him too close to me, please. It's, in the alien costume, the governor's chief of staff. This just goes to show that you guys are entirely too serious. <laughs> UFO enthusiasts were not amused, especially since the governor was believed to have seen nothing. But now he's coming out. The lights were really brilliant, uh, and it was just fascinating. It, I mean, it was it was enormous. It just felt otherworldly. You know, you're, in your gut, you could just tell it was otherworldly. Symington will be talking about this in an updated film about UFOs called Out of the Blue. He has also talked with an organization that wants UFO information more out in the open. It's very significant that someone of the stature of a governor would come out and say that they acknowledge that they experienced uh, a UFO um, because it brings a lot of credibility and strength to the case. Governor Symington says he did tell his family, friends and staff about what he saw early on. I still behind the scenes uh, tried to investigate it, but I got nowhere. 
So what were the Phoenix Lights? Well, frankly, we don't know. What we do know is that it's as much of a mystery today as it was a decade ago. Gary Tuckman, CNN, Phoenix. And now it's over two decades and it's still, <laughs> it's still a mystery. Um, okay, now, okay. Um, what's also interesting is that then you fast forward to 2017. And by the way, I, I should say here, I should say here that he said that there was panic. Yeah, there was probably panic in the military and the government, okay? There was no panic and I'm talking no panic with the witnesses. There is not one credible report of harm, threat or abduction associated with the Phoenix Lights phenomenon. I can't speak for other things, but I can for the Phoenix Lights, if anything, and we'll get to that, which I'm excited to get to that next phase because people were in awe and in wonder, uh, uh, curious. In fact, I've had more people tell me through the years that they felt blessed, they still feel blessed to have had that experience. And in 2017, there was a front page New York Times article that divulged that Harry Reid had funded a $22 million study and the Pentagon had studied the UFO phenomenon, military and pilot sightings. And just the last couple of years, 2020 actually, pilots have come forward, Navy pilots with video. But shortly after that New York Times article came out, remember I had told you there was a private pilot that was flying into Sky Harbor that mm -hmm. saw the same thing I was shooting at the same time? I didn't know who that pilot was. I just actually mentioned, I thought it was so credible that pilots were overclass peer restricted airspace and, and actually called into the tower that I mentioned in my book, but I didn't know who that pilot was. Well, just recently, in fact, currently, the Discovery Plus, and you can get it for free for a week if you care to check it out, this new show called UFO Witness, episode five, talks about the Phoenix Lights mass sighting. And that pirate pilot has come forward and you can hear a bit of his uh, interview, UK interview, which the full interview is on our, our website. Is this it? That's it. Become known as the Phoenix Lights. Just a snippet. This phenomenon is March 13th, 1997. Among ufologists, the Phoenix Lights have become one of the most iconic UFO videos ever filmed. 20,000 citizens reported seeing the strange object pictured in Dr. Katai's video. They described it as a mile-wide, triangle-shaped craft with six distinct lights. We crossed roughly 300 miles of airspace, with reports coming in from Phoenix to Tucson. And one of the witnesses turned out to be a famous actor. One of the private pilots happened to be Kurt Russell. I saw six lights over the airport in absolute uniform in a V-shape. And I reported it. And they said, we're not painting anything. We don't show anything. I said, well, okay. I'm going to declare it's unidentified. It's flying and it's six objects. That was the most viewed UFO event. Over 20,000 people saw that. Thousands of people. What's going on? It could possibly be, I think, the greatest mass sighting in, in our country's history. And you had a front row seat. I did. Um, besides that, <laughs> now we really get into really interesting stuff. If you, do you have any questions so far? Because wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay. The book, the book, the book. Yeah. Okay. We can, we can go to that. After thousands of people saw what I saw, 
pushed my medical career aside, ended up with a 750 page journal. I didn't know what to do with it. Okay. And again, this is not about me. It's about the data, but it was so compelling. And as a scientist and as an educator on vital health issues, how could I not share this vital issue? Right. So I had to go back to work to help put our younger son through medical school. He's a neurologist now, and he's in the documentary. He had a couple sightings with us. And he was the only one that read the 750 page journal, which was a mishmash of so many things. And he happened to be home for, for a month. And he looked at me, he said, mom, you have to do this. This information is too important not to share. And everything you've done has led up to this from the mouth of babes. Um, so I really had to do a lot of soul searching before I came forward. And I went back to work as a chief clinical consultant at the Arizona Heart Institute Wellness and Imaging Center, the, the heart test, and um, which tells if you have calcium in your arteries and all that. And I would consult with people after. And when I was in between patients, I was editing down the book uh, to 230 pages and kept uh, actually, they wanted me to write a new book because things kept evolving. And I said, no, no, no. Every word is there for a reason in the original book. I will do chapters that tell the rest of the story, which I have done. And it's now in its sports print. And the ebook has colored pictures and live links, including a picture that I'm going to get to in a second. Just keep that cover, please. Another thing that happened that I include in the book in fact, it's half the book. The first half is about the Phoenix Lights mass sighting. People want to know details. A lot of paranormal things happened, by the way, as the story unfolded, um, which we probably won't get into, have time to get into today. But one of the things that also came to light was that a number of witnesses to the mass sighting shared with me that they had had near-death experiences as children that was reawakened by the mass sighting. And that really took me aback because I did too, as an eight-year-old. What do you mean by, by the sighting? Like you remember- By the mass sighting, right before the mass sighting came, when I was seeing all these lights, I, it, 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 I talk about it in the book. I lay everything else out there, but they were, they were saying that they too, the mass sighting for whatever reason, that phenomena woke them up. I mean, there were people that not only had telepathic messages, there were people that, didn't even remember it when it happened. We have a psychiatrist in the book who was coming up to Phoenix from Tucson, up I-10, the biggest highway there. And one of these craft was right above their car. He was in the passenger seat and looked out and, and watched it for some time. And he said the wings were way beyond the, the, the uh, fields on either side. Nobody said a word. He was with his wife, his little girl who was going for a swim meet and her friend, Nobody said a word. And actually, um, in his full interview, Kurt Russell says the same thing. He didn't remember it. A couple years passed. And he was came in one day and Goldie Hawn, who he lives with, was watching a show about the Phoenix Lights and it like hit him. And the same thing happened with the psychiatrist. He saw something on TV and said, whoa, I think we saw that. And then it like a floodgate opened. Well, the same thing. And he happened to have a near-death experience as a child also. Uh, he was one of the witnesses that flood just opened. And uh, I thought, oh my goodness, could, is it possible that there could be a connection between all unexplained phenomena, whether it's near-death experience, out-of-body experience, or unexplained aerial phenomena that have a mystical light associated with the experience? And lo and behold, just like when I started 
searching for credible data about the UFO phenomenon and found a plethora of it. I also found a plethora of documentation for the connection between all unexplained phenomena. The Omega Project is like a four inch book from the University of Connecticut, Dr. Kenneth Ring. Um, Dr. John Mack, who is a psychiatrist at Harvard, Peer, P-E-E-R Institute. Um, he's a Pulitzer Prize winner. He's no longer with us, unfortunately, but he was just writing a book right before he passed about the connection between all unexplained phenomena. I, I lay it out very simply in the book. Not only is the experience very similar, whether it's a near-death experience, out-of-body, unexplained aerial phenomena, but the after effect, the awakening, the enlightenment that happens to a person who has an unexplained phenomena experience, the positive transformation, the connectedness to the universe and to the earth and to each other that is probably never felt before by that individual. I started calling all unexplained phenomena an up because it wasn't up. I mean, people not only, like I said, to this day, it changed their lives forever. People tell me all the time, not only did the Phoenix Lights mass sighting wake them up to the presence of something. I don't know. People ask me, who was it? I don't know. I don't know what they were, but I know that they were. And that it's time we get this topic out in the open and address it, accept it, and study it. So we can find out not only who's driving these things, but also move forward in our own evolution. We're just on the precipice of that real awakening. And we are slowly but surely. But people change their eating habits. They went into the peace movement. They went into the environmental movement. I really changed people in real time, as we mentioned, the uh, movie Independence Day was real popular at the time. And we're so inundated. We, we address this in the documentary with threat, 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 and harm, harm, harm. And Dr. Gary Schwartz, the head of the conscious department at the University of Arizona makes a very poignant statement. If you're uh, deluged by the fear factor of something, how do you think you're gonna react when you see something? That unusual, that was what was so unusual about the Phoenix Lights because people didn't react that way. Although children initially were jumping up and down, Independence Day, Independence Day. But as the phenomena came closer, a calmness came over everyone, a connectedness, to the phenomena that when it passed, they wanted to get in the car and race after it and have their parents chase it. Um, it it's so interesting and fascinating just to see in real time and long-term the reaction. Now, in the book, again, I, I really get into this whole thing. It's really, a it's not a, a belief anymore. It's a knowing, it's a knowing. That's so important. It's a knowing that not only are we not alone, but also in knowing that as uh, individuals, as human beings, we have so much more potential. I mean, it wakes people up to this after they have a Phoenix Lights experience and even an up experience. You'll have near-death experiences tell you time and time again that their lives are changed forever. They realize that the only things you take with you are love and knowledge. And it really wakes people up. Now, talking about that, okay, I really, going back to the fact that I was doing a lot of soul searching, I needed that one more push to get me to come forward with this data. I really did not want to come forward, okay? Too precarious. Why would I put myself in that situation when I had a, an accomplished medical career, right? Well, our older son, now our younger son was totally open to this and wanted me to come forward. Our older son is an attorney and 
he was the one to say, mom, you better not come forward. They're going to find out it was military and you'll look like an idiot. Okay. That was his take on it until this happened. Okay. He wanted to get a Siamese kitten for his then fiance. He was at UCLA law at the time and couldn't find one in LA. And he said, mom, you know, why don't you look in the paper and if there's one, you know, that you find, um, I'll fly in Friday night. We'll go Saturday morning. And it's a good excuse to see you. Great. Well, could not find one that was available. March the 8th, they send off the flares, which really, I have to tell you, as you asked, really made it so much more credible that whatever these things were, they were not from here, okay? Because they had their shot, they blew it, okay. But again, I needed that one more push. A Couple of weeks later, I see an ad, call the lady up, talk about serendipity, she happens not to be there till Saturday. She had three kittens. He, he flies in Friday night. We go to the first thing Saturday morning. One of the three kittens runs right up to him, which was very poignant because that very day was the 10th anniversary of my mother's passing, March 25th. What made that really significant is that he was the first born and she only had eyes for Brett. They had an extremely close grandmother-grandson relationship. So for him, it was his first pet. It was very endearing, you know, my mom's with you kind of thing. And we laughed at it and yet wanted to believe, okay. But he takes it back to LA, calls me up. He says, mom, you're not gonna believe this. I said, what's the matter? He said. I got this iZone Polaroid camera. It's a real small Polaroid camera for, at the airport. And when he then you have to pull out the strips to take the next picture. You can't double expose. He got home to his apartment. He said, I took the whole roll with the kitty. And when I laid them all out in one of the strips, which was a fifth strip, there is an arm in front of the kitten's face. And you can see through the hand. And it's my mom's hand. I said, whoa. Now, she had crippling juvenile arthritis. She went through nursing school in a wheelchair, became head nurse at the premature nursery, at the NICU, at the Einstein, Albert Einstein Hospital in Philadelphia, and a very distinctive arthritic hand. But I was skeptical. I said, Brett, you got your hand in the picture. He said, mom, it's a right hand. I was taking it with my right hand. It's impossible. And it looks like my mom's hand. She really had a very distinctive arthritic hand. I said, you know what? Don't send it through the mail. When we, when you graduate in May, this was March 25th, when you graduate in May, um, I'll pick it up and, you know, we'll discuss. Okay. And I was very skeptical. I get there. He takes out the strip and talk about falling off a chair. <laughs> this what did this is did, did it for me. Okay, Patrick, this did it for me. If we go to the next picture. So here you can see the kitten. And I don't know if you want to enlarge the picture, but you can uh, see the kitten at the bottom there. That's the strip in the middle. Okay. And then I, we enlarged. I mean, this has been analyzed as well by uh, optical physicists. Not only is there a translucent hand in front of the kitten, as you can see, but there's an arm cupping the kitten from behind. And you can see through that arm, Brett's Jansport backpack is on the floor. Can you see the oh, yeah. that label on there? And I noticed that the arm has a white robe or something. And 
what it blew me away because not only my own near ex death experience did I actually three, see three giant beings above the earth in glowing white robes, but you'll hear consistently from near death experiences and people that have had ET contact that the beings are wearing white robes. And so that blew me away. Then I actually had this picture analyzed by Paul Davids, who was doing a movie, um, uh, uh, Afterlife Project. And he came back to me and said, did your mom ever wear glasses? I said, oh yeah, she wore them, you know, on the string on her neck all the time. He said, look, and right there are glasses. <laughs> I never even saw them until he, he noted that. On this picture, there's glasses? You see on the left, like near her arm, like right there, like up there. Right that, oh, those glasses. Yeah. So, th so what you're saying and is, this is when 10 this- 10 years there, after she passed. This is 10 years after she passed in okay. 2000. She passed in March 25th, 1990. So when this picture was taken, there were no hands there. No, he was alone. And it He's showed taking up it with his on. right hand. Plus, okay, here's where it even gets better. Because again, as a healthy skeptic, um, I started looking for pictures to see if that was actually her hand. Okay. And found boxes that my dad had left when he passed in 96 and found a picture of her, whether she's in her 30s or 40s somewhere, um, holding a preemie baby almost the same way. That's the next picture. Hmm. This did it for me because not only would my mom come through to, to let Brett know that she's with him, she would have found a way. I wouldn't be who I am if it wasn't for my mom. She could move mountains. Like I said, she went through nursing school in a wheelchair and ended up as the head of preemie nursery nurse uh, at the Einstein Hospital in Philadelphia. And she's holding that baby almost the same way. It's not exact, which is good, okay? But that blew me away because I also know that my mom in her own way would be saying to me, get off your butt and do this. This is real. Hmm. So this, was this picture taken on the same day as the mass sighting? No, this was taken March 26 when he returned to LA. Got it. 2000. Huh. It, was, it was, you know, weeks after they had sent off the flares, which kind of convinced me that, hey, they had their shot and they blew it. It wasn't flares, that's for sure. But then this picture alone blew me away. And I didn't see it until May when he graduated. Mm. But, you know, after seeing this picture and then finding the picture of my mom holding the baby in a similar way, it was like, whoa. And you can see she has a very, when you enlarge the picture, she has a very arthritic hand. It can, it's not, mis you can't mistake it. In fact, yeah. we took the picture to Brett's wedding the following September and everybody that knew my mom looked at that picture and said, oh my God, that's Ruth's hand. That's how impactful it was for people. So when you had your experience and you said yeah. you, you had figures in a white robe reaching down, uh, no. Are you saying no, looking, stop. looking? No, 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 no. I didn't say that. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Uh, maybe I misunderstood it. 
Um, I'll just give you a little taste because again, there's a lot more to the story, but, um, and I don't share this usually, okay? I stick to the UFO stuff, um, except when I do spiritual and uh, that type of, of uh, conferences or podcasts or whatever, but it, it is part of the data, okay? And I let it all out there in the book because, uh, you know, I figured, hey, it is part of the story. And I've had people ask me, actually, um, were the three beings that I met as a child at eight years old have any relation to the three lights, orbs that I saw outside my bedroom window? And when you go back to the Native Americans and they're talking about ancestors, or I don't know. I don't know. I just leave the data out there for others to decide. But I was at a dentist. It's 1956. They were using ether, which is very, very dangerous for a child. In fact, after the mass sighting, shortly after the mass sighting, I think it was 97, Dan Rather did a whole show on 60 Minutes pertaining to the fact that kids have either been da brain damaged or died in a dentist's office using ether and other anesthetics, which kind of blew me away. It was like confirmatory, but be that as it may, um, and I've had other people tell me, including the psychiatrist, uh, that his near-death experience was very similar and that suddenly I was, while I was under, I was going like a, like a revolving glass door. Do you want me to tell you this story? Oh yeah. 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 Like a revolving glass door slowly and slowly. And suddenly it came to a barrier and you'll hear other people, you read near-death experience, uh, data. And other people have similar experience. They come to like a, a barrier. And I knew when I was very innocent, there wasn't any religion. Basically, we grew up in a multicultural neighborhood um, and celebrated everything. Uh, so it wasn't anything that would have been very sheltered as well. Um, in fact, uh, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. So I came to a barrier and I knew if I passed that barrier, I would be dead. And about the same time, I had this near-death experience um, review that people have. It was very short, obviously, but it showed how my mother just doted on me. I was like her little gift, which I was. I mean, she just doted on my brother and I, and I was horrified. I was in a panic thinking if I die, she's going to be devastated. I can't die. I can't die in a panic mode. Suddenly I shoot up above the stars, the sky. And I'm like kind of very mellow, very peaceful, floating among the clouds. And I notice three giant beings. Now they might have been 10 feet, I don't know. But to me, they were giant in glowing white robes with hoods over their heads. And I tried to see their faces, but the hoods were like over enough that I could not see their faces. But I felt their incredible, unconditional love for me. I felt it and I felt that they knew who I was inside. And about the same time, they were like looking down on earth, towards earth. And I turned my head and it was like I had a high powered telescope that could see people doing things on earth. I, I was watching kids make chalk um, hopscotch boards on the, on the sidewalk and jumping over. I saw uh, a milkman and in those days in 56, they would deliver milk in a truck, come out of his truck and delivered milk at the door. I saw a shopkeeper take his sign and to open his day. But 
I knew what was going to come next. And I thought, how could I know what was going to come next? And I thought, wait a minute, does that mean that we don't have control over what comes before us? A very profound <laughs> thought for a naive eight-year-old. And then I thought, but wait a minute, we might not have control of, of what comes before us, but we do have control over what we do with that situation, with that opportunity. Do we take advantage of it? Do we blow it off? Uh, how we treat that person or that animal? Are we kind or are we nasty? And then the ripple effect, do they go home? And I was seeing all this. Do they go home and, and yell at their kid because you were nasty? And I thought, whoa, if these beings are looking down on earth and giving us a stimulus and watching our reaction to that stimulus, does that mean that human beings are but an experiment? And with that thought, I hear a magnanimous male voice. And it seems like it was yesterday, like I'm talking to you. Say, it's not your time. It's not your time. There's a reason you have to go back. And with that thought, I was sucked back in my body. The dentist, I noticed immediately the dentist and nurse were like all frantic and they had my legs up and, and were asking me if I was okay. Never told me that something happened. But to this day, I know that it did. It was as real as I'm talking to you now. And for weeks afterwards, never said a word to my parents. They never said a word to my parents. I would go to a park near our house and look up to see if I could see these beings, which I never did. But I have felt that they've been with me ever since. I have felt that they are my guides and don't hear voices. But whenever I come to a crossroads or have a question, including the Phoenix Lights, you'll read in the book. At one point when I showed what I had and I asked my friends, what the hell do I have this for? I don't want to do this. I don't know anything about it. They would look at me and, or tell me, Lynn, if anybody can do something credible, professional, you can. This is what you do. And I went outside and I just looked up as I was doing for many decades and just meditated and said, okay, in my mind, if I'm supposed to do something credible and professional with this, just show me the way, lead me to whatever I have to do. I will do whatever I can to lend my expertise to help make the world a better world, which I've been doing my whole life, okay? And every, ever since, the puzzle pieces just keep falling together and the story keeps evolving. And, you know, like I said, it's the data that's important, not me, but if I can be a credible voice so people actually look at the data, then I've done my job. And ever since I was little, like when I, after I was eight years old, uh, my brother and I actually were a singing, dancing act <laughs> um, team on this big television show called The Children's Hour back in Philadelphia. And we started doing professional musical theater. And suddenly I had this beautiful three octave coloratura voice. And I thought that was why I came back, right? And I started doing unbelievable shows. I mean, it's like what I've done in my lifetime, if you look at my bio is just absurd, but I just took everything that came before me for a reason and tried to do the best of what I had. 
or what I could do with that situation. And I toured with Oklahoma with Gordon McRae. I did Guys and Dolls with Betty Grable. I understudied Barbara Eden in Our Dream of, e of Jeannie uh, in Sound of Music. Um, I did Alice in Alice in Wonderland with Sherman Hemsley from the Jeffersons on Broadway. And I don't know if you saw the movie Raising Arizona. Mm by the Cohen brothers. Oh, you gotta see that movie if you live in Arizona. <laughs> um, actually, it was Nicolas Cage had done some movies, but the cast was phenomenal. I mean, it's an iconic uh, favorite, of, of cold favorite, actually. Um, Holly Hunter, John Goodman, um, besides Nic Nicolas Cage, uh, Francis McDormand, um, William Forsythe, and me. <laughs> I had a small role as, as Florence, Arizona, the mother of quintuplets. And there's, a, there's also another little coincidence with this that you and your audience might find interesting. Okay. When, and it was a, a it's a comedy, actually. It's a, it's a black comedy. When Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter cannot conceive, the Arizona family has quintuplets. And they figured, oh, they can you know, miss one kid. What's the difference? And they kidnap one of the kids, right? Right after they do that, they have a press conference in front of the Jacoki Inn, which is at the Phoenician. That was our house. And one of the reporters sticks a microphone in my husband's face and says, is this true that you're... Uh, what, I'm sorry, is this true that your son was abducted by UFOs? The only reference to UFOs in the entire movie. And my husband says, oh, please, please, son, if you, if his mama reads that, she'll lose all hope, which is total opposite from my own take. But I had a fellow come up to me at one of the conferences years later in the 2000s and say, you know, there's a reference to your character and UFOs in Raising Arizona. I didn't even remember. That really got, <laughs> number one, that, in the whole movie, there's nothing about UFOs except that one line, right? 10 years, it came out in 87, 10 years before the mass sighting in 97. Plus the cinematographer, this is where it really gets interesting. The cinematographer who was also just starting out at the time, who went on to do when Mary, uh, when um, Sally met, uh, uh, what is it? The, the Harry Met Sally, um, Big with, with uh, Tom Hanks, um, the, the Adams Family, um, uh, when the, While the West Was One with Will Smith, also created and photographed the Men in Black series, which opened in 97, the same year as a mass sighting, Barry Sonnenfeld. Coincidence? I don't, there's a lot of interesting coincidences there for sure. Um, I guess, yeah, I mean, it's, it all fascinates me. Uh, and I have a lot of questions. There's a lot covered. Uh, all right, before, before we get into the questions, which I really look forward to, um, the next slide shows, just so the audience will know, if they want to take a look at its very gentle overview, um, there's much more in the book. But um, I wanted to get something out there. And that was another thing. Um, I was working at the Arizona Heart Institute, and I was approached by filmmakers after I came forward. And I was also blown away. Um, I was really scared to come forward. Um, but after I did, in March of 2004, um, I had doctors and nurses pull me aside and say, I've got to tell you my experience when I was seven or I was 11 and, and there was a UFO on the beach or whatever. Um, and they really appreciated what I did. I mean, it was the first time I realized that not only 
with their appreciation for the, all the hard work for seven years, but, um, and now longer, of course, but uh, people related, it helped people transform to a good place. And uh, I, was, I was approached by filmmakers. One of them actually graduated from Brooks Institute of Photography. And I said, hey, uh, you know, he said, I'm coming with equipment in, in, uh, in June and his father lives here. He's a doctor that we knew. And I said, whoa, Steve, I said, I'm doing, I'm working seven to seven. I have doing interviews like this one uh, into the night during the week. I'm doing Barnes and Noble and Borders tool, Tools tour on the weekend. He said, I'm bringing my equipment, let's get started. I said, whoa, I said, I don't know if other people will come forward. I stayed anonymous for seven years and I take confidentiality very seriously and people were starting to, to share their experiences. I said, I don't know if they would wanna come forward. And, and I was also told that professors that I worked with could lose their grants if they mentioned UFOs, okay? Every single person that I asked, except one who came on later, said absolutely they would do it. And it really is a grassroots effort. And then what clinched it is that there were a couple of parents that saw me at Barnes and Noble and it actually arranged for me to come to their middle school, a very prestigious middle school here, private middle school. I was amazed that they would even let me in the door with this topic. I walk in, there were 200 students, teachers and parents there too. You could hear a pin drop. And it was the first time that I realized that there is nothing in our history books. And when I finished my talk and I hadn't gotten everything together like I do today, they wouldn't stop clapping. And, I, and I, it just hit me that they thirst. They thirst for this knowledge. So at that point, I said to Steve, okay, let, you know, people said they'll do it. Let's start production. By you know, late June, July, I had to make a decision. And you know what that decision was. I left the Arizona Heart uh, Institute and we finished the documentary. We had our uh, premiere actually at the Scottsdale Hark and Shea Theater. Um, we've been sold out every year. We have an event for anybody that's in the area that wants to look us up. Unfortunately, last year we had to postpone it. And this year um, we actually didn't plan it, but next year it's the 25th anniversary. So um, hopefully we'll be able to do it and really make it huge. We have speakers and Q&A and we show the documentary, the latest edition of the documentary. Um, what we've been doing with the DVD, and again, it's a gentle overview uh, for everyone. And especially I wanted to focus not only on young people, but also people that, um, that might not be open to the, the phenomena, to just educate them a bit, to, to pique their interest so they'll actually read the book. So you can watch it for free if you have Amazon Prime. So I wanted to get that out there. And the bonus features, if you do purchase the DVD, that's what we've been adding to. And we have astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who's in the documentary, he's wonderful. Talk about the cover-up, which I don't get into, okay? I don't go there, um, but he does. And we have a pilot that also witnessed, that also talks about why it couldn't possibly be flares. And we have a 93 oxygenarian or whatever, um, that was actually a Foo Fighter a pilot in World War II and saw these Foo Fighters um, and reported it and his story is fascinating and a lot more. And then the last thing, because I wanted to get something in the classroom is our graphic novel activities 
coloring book if you want to change to the next one. Um, I've been working on a curriculum for over seven years. It's extremely difficult to get anything in the classroom, even though my AIDS and teen pregnancy and substance abuse programs were distributed by Discovery Education and did get in the classroom. This topic is not as easy. So I wanted to get something together from all the wonderful data we uh, composed, uh, working with a Disney illustrator and teachers. And we actually had pilot programs in the classroom, getting feedback from the kids and a map maker David Wisby came to Phoenix and illustrated in, in um, uh, you know, the size that they would have been of the 10 different craft to color. We have iconic pictures in there of uh, the history pictures. We tell the story of the Phoenix Lights as it unfolded, um, as well as 80 crop circles, and we try to pick the most ornate crop circles that couldn't possibly have been made by humans. And then we have a whole section on activities for young and old of um, word finders and, and uh, crossword puzzles and uh, sacred geometry and a whole bunch of others and the answers as well. So it's a we have a 150 page black and white version, and we have 160 page which, where we put some color pictures in there, um, which is fun. And it's all on Amazon. And uh, you, actually, if you go to the color version, you can look at the inside of the book if you care to do that. And uh, teachers love it. Parents love it. They do that with their kids. It really, I wanted to get something to, to introduce this not only in the classroom, but to have parents and grandparents uh, have a fun time and an educational experience, uh, an enlightening experience um, with, with the graphic novel activities, coloring book, um, Adventures of Sue F.O., Field Observer, and Hugh F.O., he's a little alien, H-U-G-H. Uh, so um, that's something also, a trilogy of the Phoenix Lights um, products, as well as the, the website. The Phoenix Lights Network website is packed with information for free. I just want to get the information out there so people can enjoy it and uh, consider things and, and explore and uh, decide for themselves. Wow, that was a, that was very interesting. Now I have a couple questions, and I guess what I'm really curious about, kind of where you you kind of started, you kind of capped it off with kind of hinting at a lot of the paranormal stuff that really started happening around the event. I almost feel like um, I, I found it very interesting because I didn't know a lot about the paranormal stuff. And I almost wonder if that would even take, get more people to take it a little bit more seriously. If, if like that was part of, you know, the narrative around the mass sighting. You, well, you that's why I wrote the book because half the book is about not only how it affected people in real time and long term, but also the whole um, uh, addressing all the paranormal and how you know how uh, you know that part of it is to me one of the most poignant, most powerful ingredients of the Phoenix Lights mass sighting. That's why I had to put it all out there and let people mm -hmm. decide for themselves. But you know, I have to say there are some people out there, and I get it that can't deal with this or don't want to deal with it. And, you know, right away, um, you know, unfortunately we've had comments uh, even on Amazon where they'll watch the documentary. And as soon as we get into that part of it, they, oh, this is new age and it's woo woo and all that. They just can't deal with it, um, which I get. Um, why they would review it, I don't know. But um, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it is an important, I agree with you, is an important part of it. In fact, a month after the mass sighting, and I don't know if we have time to read it uh, or not, that's up to you. Um, 
there was an experience that happened that I won't get into. Uh, I won't spoil it for people that are reading the book, but um, it was so mind boggling and so outside of any my reality that I had to go downstairs and, and write down my thoughts. And in the dark, I actually started writing on a tablet and writing and writing and writing. And the next morning, uh, a couple of the investigators came to the house to kind of measure where some of these lights were and so forth uh, and the topography. And I was showing them through the house we got to the library and I said, oh, you know, I wrote something last night. <laughs> I don't even know what I wrote. I just was like writing from somewhere. And, uh, and I read it to them for the first time. Do you want to end with that? And then we'll come back another time with questions because this is, I don't know if your listeners all hang in there or not. It's up to you. Well, here's the thing. I love talking about par paranormal stuff and I would love to ask you more. And I'm curious, like, what I mean, would you be willing to go into some of the details of that story? Um, I guess, are you, is there a reason why you're hesitant to, to talk about the paranormal? Right stuff? now, I don't have time to. <laughs> oh, okay. okay, yeah, what, what's the yeah, go ahead and read it. So, okay, here we go again. I have not changed the word of this since that night that I wrote it. It is what it is, but I have to say that it did send me on this journey, um, because I was curious what it meant and wanted to find answers, okay. I don't know about other living creatures in the vast universe, but questions keep permeating my mind about the ones who are trying to get our attention now. What if these beings are as advanced spiritually as they are technologically? What if they want to share this beautiful and wondrous future with us? And what if they have already met our spirit world and know firsthand that the essence of who we are is pure. They may only be trying to help us recognize the positive spirit deep within and teach us to know ourselves for who we really are before we destroy our world. Each and every one of us is a powerful being with the strength and wisdom to deeply appreciate our earth and every living creature on it. It is time we view ourselves in a new light that this can begin by searching within ourselves to find goodness and love so that the consciousness of humankind can elevate spiritually above petty differences, envy, greed, lies, hatred, abuse, violence, and fear. That is our destiny. But only if each one of us chooses to look in within our own soul for the answers, they are there. It isn't too late. Humankind can begin this very moment to learn and grow so that our future will benefit from our newfound knowledge, not be pulled down by our self-serving primal ignorance. It is so very important to look within yourself and to believe in yourself. Judge yourself each and every day. There will come a time when you will indeed judge every moment of your own life, the good things and the bad the kindness and the wrath that you and you alone have brought to other human beings, to other living things, to our earth. You will feel what it felt like to be on the receiving end. Near-death experiences have told us time and time again that when we die, we go through a life review. God does not judge us. We judge ourselves. So maybe we should judge ourselves now. Think clearly about how we treat others, the energy and dedication we put into our relationships, especially our family, as well as our relationship to other living things we touch in this short 
but precious existence. So when our time does come, we won't have to endure pain and sadness, but rather we will be drenched in the ecstasy of our own love in the magnificent light of love. And if each one of us truly looks deep within, the positive energies emanating from the goodness each one of us possesses will be shared around the world. Then our beautiful journey to a new reality will have begun. So you wrote that um, and don't remember writing any of that? Wow. I knew I wrote something. I mean, after I had an experience the night before, a month after the mass sighting, that my mind was just flooded with all these thoughts that I would never have thought of before. And I had to write it down. I just felt compelled to do so and went downstairs, picked up a tablet, my eyes closed, just wrote it, wrote it, wrote it, and read it for the net for the first time the next day to, so they're a witness to that, to um, a couple of the witnesses. Have you heard about this uh, I mean, radio broadcast that came through some television in like the 1970s that was talking about being from an intergalactic force or something have you heard about this i did hear about it i like i said i am so i am a healthy skeptic i gotta see it myself to believe it what's that why do you say the healthy the well i don't know i mean i don't know i would have to be there and see it for myself and know where it came from and you know like i said i'm a scientist so i got to get right down to the data and and um make sure that it's not a hoax or To me, it's very interesting hearing a lot about your medical side. And I wonder, is that the part of you where that's where you're like, I need to see the data before I can start drawing conclusions. And then I also see the, the, the interesting parallel where you've experienced paranormal things where there isn't necessarily a scientific explanation that we know of at this point in your head. I'm just curious was there any internal conflict between those two sides of you kind of just battling each other as you're going through this? Well, sure. I mean, I, you know, from the get go, I mean, after seeing the close sighting in 95, which really opened it all up again and the near death experience again. And, um, you know, it just, I, I was flooded with, with thoughts and ideas going through my brain trying to make sense of it. And what made the most sense at the time was actually sitting down and starting to write data and really compile the credible data as much as I possibly could. And once I had done that and then saw, geez, you know, people aren't gonna read this if it's just raw data. <laughs> I mean, it would be very boring. And I knew all the other stuff had happened, right? Besides my childhood near-death experience, I was finding the connection between all unexplained phenomena and other witnesses were coming forward to say they also had childhood near-death experiences that was reawakened by the mass sighting and knowing that that data is important too. And I thought, whoa, you know, there must be a connection to all this. And then the American, the Native American situation. I have, I have Navajo Rangers, law enforcement, on the Navajo range who came to me and told me that they actually had a sighting the day before, a big sighting on, over the Navajo range, the day before our mass sighting of March 13th, 1997, where, and they're used to it. I mean, they're open to it. They see beings. They, I mean, there's a lot going on in the Navajo nation and they see these 
gigantic, massive uh, cigar-shaped craft all the time with, with orbs or other craft coming out of it. Um, but they share with me that uh, they, they had these orbs going around in big circles, clockwise and then counterclockwise um, for hours. And they, they, you know, the people would bring out their lawn chairs and just watch it. And they thought it would be like a big deal. And then the next day, the mass sighting happened, so it kind of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, overshadowed their their sighting. But they're working with me, and they we actually speak together at conferences. And the fact that they have come forward and they're talking about that they're law enforcement studying these phenomena credibly and and professionally, and not taking it as a joke um, is so important, so important. And, you know, that, that's one of the main reasons I came forward to say, this is not a joke. Um, there's a lot more to this story, uh, you know, as a scientist, as a, um, a physician, as an experiencer, and certainly as an educator, um, to let people see the data and then decide for themselves. That makes sense. Um, I'm, I'm curious, as a doctor, having had a near-death experience where you experienced something that you couldn't necessarily explain, but to you, it was like, this is as real as, as anything. Right. Um, I'm curious, would, would there be a, like, as a, as a doctor, does part of you looking at the data of like textbooks and stuff go, okay, maybe this is a chemical reaction going on the DMT. Um, or, all right. And the NDEs is a whole other lecture. Okay. Actually, um, Paul Purry, who wrote the, in the forward to my book, um, I had gotten in touch with him uh, before the mass sighting, like a, like a couple months before the mass sighting, because the floodgates opened. Um, and uh, to ask him if it was a true near-death experience, he is a New York bestseller um, with, with Melvin Morris, MD, who studies uh, children's near-death experience um, with Daniel Brinkley, who's a, a big guy in the field. Um, and after reading some of the books, I saw he lived in Scottsdale. So I called him up and I, we got together. And actually he had to postpone for several weeks. And we got together the week before the mass sighting. And we met for hours and hours. And I, I, I mean, there's so much more to the story that we don't have time to get into, but he confirmed to me that what I had was a near-death experience. And um, and I didn't mention the Phoenix Lights, the lights that I was seeing, because I thought, well, he's gonna really think that I'm way out there. And um, the following week, after it was like a big deal on the news, I called him up to thank him for meeting with me for so long, because I wanted to do something, because we didn't learn anything in medical school in the early 70s, where, when I went to Temple University Medical School about near-death experience or any of that. And I said, you know, even the medical profession doesn't really have the data. Um, wouldn't it be cool to do something for medical schools, right? And we were talking about it. And I said, by the way, did you see uh, the story last week about this mass sighting? <clears throat> he said, sure. I said, did you see the video of the three endpoints of a giant V or triangle over the city? He said, sure. I said, that's my video. And he literally screamed. He said, I'm coming over right now. <laughs> And he was so excited and he came over and, uh, you know, was asking me where I saw the close sighting. And, you know, then I told him the whole story and he followed the story ever since. I mean, I really did my homework, not only to make sure, even though I knew it was real and I have felt that these beings have been with me as my guides. And whenever I do have a situation, here's another situation. Um, when I was uh, uh, touring with um, 
uh, Barbarine and Sound of Music. And I was called by Leon Uris, who wrote the book Exodus. It was a very famous book, Exodus. And also the movie with Paul Newman was a giant hit. And now he was doing the, and there's so many examples, but this is just one of many. Um, they were doing a musical about Exodus. And uh, I, I was called to, to audition for the part of the ingenue out of the blue. It was, we were in Albany and they, they flew me into New York City and I'm at the big Schubert or whatever theater it was there and I auditioned. I was starting medical school in a month, okay? And in 1970, there was a handful of females in my class of 120, okay? And I didn't know what to do if I got the part because I mean, this was like an ingenue's dream to do the ingenue in a the book, the, the movie was a giant hit. And now they're doing the musical with Leon Uris, the author of the book. Um, and it got down to two of us. And in fact, I knew the other girl. She went to elementary school with me. I mean, talk about coincidences. In fourth grade, she got plucked out of fourth grade. She was a prima ballerina. She was an unbelievable dancer to actually star as baby June in the original Gypsy on Broadway with Ethel Merman, okay? And it got down to the two of us. And I do what I usually do. I meditate because I didn't know what to do. And I knew if I didn't go to medical school, I probably would never be accepted again if I did Broadway. But I did my meditation and the answer that I got, just the feeling was that I have to go to medical school one day, I'll know why. And when I called Leon Uris, he wasn't too happy with me. And as it turned out, the show actually went on the road in Boston. They do like a preview, opened on Broadway and closed in three weeks. I would have been dead meat mm. if I had done that. No school would have ever accepted me knowing that I had you know, ditch the school, medical school, right? So that's just one of many. So to just answer your question briefly, um, you know, there's so much more to the story. I hope people will pick up the book, uh, the, the e-books like nine bucks or whatever, um, because there's so much more in there and every word is there for a reason. Uh, and I've expounded on it now in its fourth print. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully they'll have a better understanding of all the data. I hope that the audience isn't too confused with all this, but it does all fit together. And um, that's why it was important for me to share that with you and your audience today, because I know you're into the paranormal thing, which is great. And we can talk about that another time, um, because there were other things that, that happened that were mind boggling after the mass sighting that proved to me that this was real and that I needed to come forward. What, what I'm curious about is, um, so essentially what we could imply is potentially the beings that you saw in your near-death experience may have also been the same beings that were responsible for the Phoenix lights. Does that I, I, I Well, I have to tell you, see, I don't know any of that. I can't confirm it. Okay. I have evidence, 35 millimeter evidence of something really unusual that cannot be explained that I can share and tell you, I know for certain that I've gone to extreme lengths to have yeah. explained to me. And to this date, no one can explain what they are. They can explain what they're not, but they can't explain what they are. That I can say definitively, not proof of anything, because I don't know who's behind it. And I wish I did. Okay, I would love somebody to show me or tell me. Um, but it's time we get this out in the open so we can address it and accept it and study it and find out who's driving those these things. But on the other side, it's important that this data gets out there because so many people 
millions of people worldwide have had paranormal experiences, even though most can be explained, right? But it's real to them and they have to know they're not alone and that there's there's data out there that can help them move forward and in a positive way. And um, that's that's why I'm doing this. And, and that hopefully explains, you know, what the Phoenix Lights is, is all of the above. And, um, you know, I hope people will take a look at the data that's there and decide how that fits into their life and maybe open them up a little more. And and also, I have to tell you, just sharing a near-death experience and how it will affect you after you pass, each individual in its own way, to me, is really powerful. Because if people actually realize that what they do while they're alive on Earth does matter to them, and their story and their destiny forevermore, maybe they would take stock in how they treat that person and how they look at that opportunity and make them a better person and therefore make the world a better place. Yeah, very interesting. I guess we could wrap up on this. I'm just curious your take on this. Do you feel like with all the stuff that has been confirmed in recent years with the Navy pilot videos and the New York Times articles, do you feel like there's a time coming within our lifetimes where there may be disclosure of exactly what's going on. Actually, it's happening. It's been happening. A slow sieve of, of information and confusion and, you know, letting people adapt and letting people that are fearful not be as fearful and, and all that. I mean, that's all in the mix. And, you know, I never go into the cover-up situation because um, the military and government have their job to do. And certainly, you know, I, I appreciate that and respect that. Um, that's why this is a grassroots effort. This is a video. The film is a grassroots effort to just get some information out there that may enlighten people, raise their awareness, um, to, to, to prepare them, to prepare them for what's next. And yes, I feel that it's really becoming much more accelerated because they can't keep it quiet anymore. There's too many people that are seeing things. Now, people have asked me, why isn't there more pictures from 95? Actually, whoever did this, not only did it in a non-threatening and a gentle way to wake people up to their presence as well as to the wonders of the universe, but it's poignant that they did it at that time because number one, we have those clunky phones that didn't have cameras. Um, today, it would be a much different situation, but there's so many hoaxes and, and um, frauds and satellites and drones and so many other things out, out there now to confuse with the issue. Then there wasn't in 97. And um, the fact that so many people, it touched so many people, one person at a time, and their stories are poignant and detailed and affected their lives. That does not happen with planes and helicopters and flares and whatever. Do you know what I mean? So that alone has to tell you that it's preparing one person at a time, just as I'm trying to do, okay, Um, So to be ready. And we're getting closer. Will it happen in our lifetime? I think it is happening in our lifetime. Will we get to meet these other beings? That's up to each individual because we all have the potential to communicate. And in the book, I give 10 ways that a person can connect with these other intelligences. The Native Americans, the Native cultures do it all and have for centuries. And we're capable, every person's capable if they open their mind and their heart and they wanna do it. And they go forward with even trying. There's a whole other universe out there. 
And like, like we're told, I mean, there's this, many planets. I mean, now we know with the Kepler and the, and the um, other telescopes out there, Spitzer telescopes, that there are uh, thousands, millions of other galaxies out there along with ours. And all these galaxies have planets and all the planets, all the, I'm sorry, all have stars, like trillions of stars. And planet, these stars have planets. And now we're learning about habitable zones that, that could be very similar to the earth. We know now that the ingredients of life are out there. Hydrogen, nitrogen, um, uh, all uh, amino acids, carbon, uh, whatever. And that our Moon Milky Way galaxy is a very is, is only about 14 billion years old. Okay, our solar system is a very young solar system. It's only four to six billion years old. There are scientists now postulating that there could be intelligent, sentient entities out there, billions of years ahead of us. Hmm. Billions of years ahead of us. And when we look at the data. And see that there are submersibles now. They call them USOs, UFOs coming out of the ocean. 70% of the earth is ocean. They could be there and have been there for centuries and we wouldn't even know it. Okay. So there, there's so much more to, to learn and to study. And I've given little bits and pieces to your audience. But, um, you know, when you think about the fact that these phenomena have been documented since human documentation began and that who knows if we were seated here which is also talked about by other intelligences. Maybe we are an experiment to see how we would fare if we came from all over the universe into one planet. Think about that, okay? And how we're doing, <laughs> okay? So that's a whole other issue. But, um, you know, it's, it's stuff to really, uh, stuff to think about and, and stuff to, to um, decipher and consider and explore. And now there's, there's data there that people can look at with the Phoenix lights. And I hope that they do. Do you personally believe that the government has been in contact with these intelligent beings or do you believe? That's a whole nother conversation because, uh -huh. you know, we, we'd be talking for another hour with, uh -huh. with the Robertson panel and all that that was going on in the 50s and Roswell and they didn't know what to do with it. And, uh, you know, then with the Robertson panel, they decided that, you know what, um, we've got to discredit people and, and uh, you know, make it a non-thing um, because I don't think they knew what to do with it at the time. And it's just evolved from there. So um, certainly there are thousands and thousands and thousands of pilot sightings, credible pilot sightings that have been kept undercover for, for these for decades and decades. And um, again, I mean, even Sumerian writings and India writings and even the Bible, Ezekiel's wheel, um, was that them interpreting what they saw? Um, you know, so there's a lot to this. So um, if we could just end it on that, and I hope people will, because I do get into that in the book, by the way, um, you know, we'll pick up the book and then um, let's talk next time uh, yeah. and delve yeah. into more of these questions. That would be fabulous. But, uh, and, and also again, I, welcome people to uh, contact me if they've had an experience or a sighting and, and just want to get it off their chest. It is very healing of cathartic. And, um, you know, look on Facebook at the Phoenix Lights Network page. And also we have a Phoenix Lights group page where people can share right there if they care to. And um, certainly the website, thephoenixlights.net. Of course. 
Awesome. I'll link to a lot of this stuff down below this video. And thanks so much for coming on. And yeah, let's definitely, we're actually moving to a new studio because I'm getting a, another uh, bigger house. So um, when the new studio is set up, I would love to have you come back on and then we can go deep on just whatever random questions we didn't have time for today. So I appreciate it. I'm sure there's many, <laughs> believe me, I know I've had them. <laughs> okay. So thank you for your kind interest and for letting me share what I did. And, um, you know, I just tell everybody, keep looking up.